This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast with me, Matt Chorley. Uh, packed show on my Times Radio show today. We talked about Scotland with the polling legend, Professor Sir John Curtis, who said there was a decent chance of uh, Scotland becoming independent. Alex Massey and Angela Haggerty also uh, lot horns on that one. Comedian Shapiko Sandy told us what she would do if she ruled the world. Uh, Labour MP Clive Lewis, not totally clear what his party's policy on wearing face masks is. Uh, you can listen to all of that if you want to listen back to the show on the Times Radio app or online. But on the podcast today, uh, we thought we'd bring you a fascinating chat with Mary Beard, the historian and broadcaster, who basically taught, gave me a history lesson, a history class in how we can learn from what the Romans ever did for us in our politics and what uh, the ancient Greeks uh, can tell us about politics today, in particular the Prime Minister's obsession with Pericles and Cicero. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. This is Mary Beard talking to me on my Times radio show, 10 till 1, Monday to Thursday. Now then on Times Radio, what did the Romans ever do for our politics and what can ancient history tell us about what is happening today? We've got a Prime Minister who likes to quote Cicero and who keeps a bust of Pericles in his office and a US President which some have likened to Julius Caesar. But are these parallels useful or not? In our latest history class, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Mary Beard, leading scholar of ancient civilization at Cambridge and frankly, one of the best classicists around. She's also been hosting a culture show from her study during lockdown, and Mary joins me now. Good morning, Mary. Hello, Matt. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Now, um, I'm putting myself at your mercy here, I have to confess, because this, this is far from my area of expertise. So, so assume I know very little and treat me as your sort of, um, your, your underperforming pupil in all of this. Right. Um, so where, where do we want to start? Well, I mean, I think... With the question you just raised, really, which is, you know, what did the Romans ever do for us or can we learn from them, right? And I think um, 
I think all those kind of parallels that we love to draw with the Romans, you know, is is Trump, is Trump really like Julius Caesar or is he like Nero? You know, that kind of question. Um, I think they're immensely good fun and they help you think about Trump in different ways. I don't think they solve any political problems. I don't think, you know, I don't think the Romans provide a template for us to work out what to do about Trump. (laughs) And I think that's the danger. You know, what you don't find if you look back in ancient history. You don't find the kind of the answer. What you find is interestingly different ways of looking at the present. And I, you know, that for me is good enough. But, is, it, is it also sometimes, because we, we, we constantly tell ourselves we live in unprecedented times, that actually sometimes, uh, maybe not going all the way back to the Roman, but sometimes reaching for parallels in the past, which nations came through, is a sort of reassurance yeah. sometimes that everything might be all right in the end. I mean, yeah, and I think you can see that about, you know, plagues and pandemics, really. You know, I think, you know, people often say, or people have been tempted to say, looking at some of the terrible plagues there were in the Roman Empire, um, oh, maybe it was that that brought the Roman Empire down, you know, and, and thinking, uh and maybe this will kind of, uh, what we're going through will somehow kind of collapse our own political system. I mean, I think it's, it's much better to say, look, actually... Um, the Greeks and the Romans and people at other periods, they survived this stuff. You know, <laughs> the good news is things might be a bit different, but, you know, a total kind of collapse of everything we know doesn't actually follow from some of these terrible um, pandemics of the past. You know, so, you know, you can be a, a glass half full or a glass half empty. <laughs> Always glass half full. Well. That's definitely my, <laughs> yes. uh, my... So let's go... Right, let's start with the basics then and democracy. And uh, what? We, how does what we call democracy differ to how the Greeks or the Romans might have seen it? Well, the Romans hated democracy. They would never have ever wanted, and apart from a few real radicals, that they were very keen on liberty, but they were not keen on democracy. Um, where you find that what we think of as the origin of democracy, it's in 5th century Athens. Um, and it's it's only a, one of many political systems the, the ancient Greeks had. They would be completely baffled uh, about what we call democracy. And I think one good um, example to take is that we tend to think that one of the hallmarks of democracy is democratic elections. You know that that you know we have a right to cast our vote, to you know choose a government or a president or whatever. Now, if you go back to fifth century Athens, the the Athenian commentators appear to have thought that uh, that elections were deeply conservative because it privileged the system of election, privileged those who had um, the chance and the money to be able to canvass, etc., etc. And if they thought of what the best democratic means of choice was, they would say drawing lots. And in the middle of the 5th century, almost all Athenian political officials, not quite all, but almost all of them were chosen by lot. Uh, and uh, it was seen to be a, a you know a hugely important step forward, you know, not to let the rich stand for election and bribe the electorate and get voted in. This feels like a very today sort of debate <laughs> to be having: is the how do you prevent uh, 
democracy yeah. politics being dominated by the well-off. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're, I think we're, we're still relatively lucky in the UK, but if you look across to uh, America, where, you know, it's two billionaires yeah. locking horns and seeing who can spend as much yeah. money as possible. Yeah, you know, and I think, so, you know, in, in I mean, I'm not saying that we want to go back to an Athenian system, <laughs> but um, maybe we do. Um, jury's out. But, um, but I think what's important is for us to see that some of the assumptions that we make about what really underpins democracy is is not the, uh, simply not the assumptions that the ancient Athenians made, and uh, I think it helps you. I mean, I, I think lo- looking at this this kind of deep history, I think it helps you look at your own society as it were, from the outside. I mean, I think you can start to say, just like you did, you know, what would the Athenians have thought about us? Well, they would have thought that we were deeply undemocratic, even though the symbol of modern democracy, you know, that you see on the front of newspapers, you know, when when elections happen, is the ballot box. They thought that was was giving advantage to the rich. Um, 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 and of course, actually, you know, in some ways, we still have bits of that idea in our system. Because, you know, if you think about uh, juries, you know, ju- juries in criminal cases, um, they're chosen by lot. You know, they, that is a choice by lot. And we think that's terribly important because you're getting a fair representative sample of, you know, the, of, of society. Um, so, you know, it's not, you know, the idea, some Athenian ideas are still with us, even though I suspect that we don't recognise them. And, and we don't think about juries really as being chosen by lot. We just tend to moan when we get done for jury service. <laughs> but actually, this is, you know, absolute degree zero democracy. And what about uh, the, the the question of, and you know, this has been thrown up by recent elections and referendums, we don't need to go into the sort of the particular details, but the idea that people didn't have the facts and and mm. actually rhetoric and cheap sloganeering has, has mm. overridden, you know, people knowing what they were voting yeah. on. This is not a new complaint, is it? Uh, it is not a new complaint. And um, you can go right back to satirical commentary, comedy in the 5th century BC Athens to see people making the same kind of complaints. You know that, that democracy only works um, if the people are informed. And there's a, a terribly famous um, uh, kind of changing your mind in a referendum debate because in, in the middle of the fifth century BC, because the Athenians who did you know, vote on legislation, they didn't vote to. Um, elect officials, but they voted on legislation. They all got together to vote um, to uh, put to death uh, all the men and enslave all the women of one of their satellite states who'd rebelled from them because the Athenians were both a democracy and a pretty tough empire. Um, and they put their hands up and they say, we're going to, you know, as punishment, for your rebellion, we're going to slaughter the men and enslave the women. Uh, they go home that night, you know, no doubt have quite a bit of ouzo to drink. Um, <laughs> and they, oh, my God, you know, what have we done? Um, so they come together the next morning um, and they put the vote again. They say, look, maybe we should think again. And the, the decision is overturned. 
And then they have to think, but heavens, we've already sent the ship to tell these people that what we're going to do. You know, we've sent we've sent the hit squad. <laughs> but luckily, the hit squad was so gloomy about what they were going to have to do that they were rowing very slowly. <laughs> so, so the new ship goes, uh, intercepts them and says, I mean, there was still some pretty brutal punishment, but it wasn't going to be punishment to the death. And it's... It, Romans look back to that and, and Greeks talked about it, you know, as a classic example of changing your mind. You know, democracies are allowed to do it. <laughs> that does sound like a, a, a pretty good, if elaborate, sort of metaphor for some of the debates which have happened about uh, politics yeah. and referendum yeah. results and all that sort of thing in, in modern times. What about the power of, of speech and oratory yeah. um, and the, yeah. the impact that that could have on, on, you know, swaying the electorate, the mob or whatever it might be? You know, terribly, terribly worrying, you know, because, you know, one of, the, one of the, the key fears that these satiric comments comedies in the middle of the 5th century home in on is the idea that someone who can make, by speaking, can make the worse argument seem the better. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. And the idea that what persuasion, the idea of the persuasive power of speech could persuade you. Oh dear, I think we've just slightly lost... Uh... So... Oh, no, Mary, sorry, we lost you then. The line just slightly cut out. Uh, oh, sorry. They, one of the things they really worried about was the persuasive power of speech, which could persuade you to vote for the wrong thing. You know, that, that, that rhetoric and skills in oratory were not, not neutral. They, they persuaded you to do what you shouldn't. And speech is... You know, crucially important in the ancient world. Most people probably are illiterate. And so uh, Greek and Roman commentators are very, very concerned about um, how, you, how you inform and persuade people to do one thing or the other. And there was a real problem about uh, rhetoric 
the better rhetorician you were, the more you were likely to persuade people to do things they shouldn't. And I think we've lost that feeling of um, of anxiety about rhetoric. What you think now? Now we're you know we're quite happy to go along with if if someone is a good public speaker or they've got the best slogan, they tend to win the day. Yeah, or we're not very. We're not very analytical about how we are being persuaded. This is where I think possibly things like media studies have had a very, very bad press because maybe they are actually helping kids look at um, you know, uh, the, the mechanisms of persuasion and why we're influenced by whether it's advertisements or politicians or the television. You know, you need to think about why do I find that guy persuasive? And that, of course, is what the ancients are very good at. I mean, you look now. You know, if you're a student and you're studying the ancient Greeks and Romans, you know, there are pages and pages of, you know, what is rather kind of drearily called rhetorical treatises. And you think, you know, I'd rather not read those. Thank you very much. And they do appear to be a bit dull, but they're reaching to an absolutely fundamental issue, which is, um, that's my phone going, let me turn it off. Um, they're reaching to a fundamental issue of how how do words work how does persuasion work how do we make our minds up you know? um, so I think they've, they've got a lot they've, they've got a lot not to help us with I mean I don't you know I couldn't honestly say that you know if you read loads and loads of Plato or Cicero you'll have the answer to today's problems no you won't but you'll have thought about them differently and you'll have seen that other people you know, they face these problems too. <laughs> our problems are not new problems. I know, we always like to think that our problems are a sort of new phenomenon of the media or the 21st century yes. or whatever, and actually it's the same old yes. problem. Uh, but knowing that you were coming on, I, I did try to read up, do a bit of homework before our history lesson, and I came across, and it's something you've spoken about before, a sort of Roman handbook of electioneering, a sort of early <laughs> early spin doctor. It basically said, don't have any policies, because some people won't like them. Don't make any, you can make any promise you like to potential voters even if you know yeah. you can't keep them um, because if you refuse to do what people want they'll only they won't vote for you that's I mean you know this is I mean I, I did once a long time ago previous election I did interview Boris Johnson about this handbook of election theory and he was very very taken with it you know, <laughs> of, you know nothing new under the sun just look at this you know here's someone thousands of years ago and they've sort of nailed what happens now um and of course you know of, of course you know there's there's hundreds and thousands of differences between us and antiquity you know the position of women position of the enslaved whatever but ultimately you know the the, the basic principles in Rome particularly much more so I think than Greece um, Rome was a very strongly electoral economy um, uh, they, they're, the, they're very very similar and people saw things you can you can see the Romans, seeing things so damn clearly you know like you know promise anything because you won't have to deliver it <laughs> until you seek re-election i suppose that's the only downside um you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned boris johnson he's obviously you know he's got this obsession with cicero he quoted cicero when he came out of hospital um a couple of months ago the uh, health of the people should be the supreme law 
Um, yes. What do you make of this? Um, this this interest in in is it real? Does he really know his stuff, or has he just got a few quotes up his sleeve to impress people like me who don't know enough about it? I think I think he is. I could be fair to him, actually. I think he's sincere in his interest in the ancient world. I have no doubt that that he um, cares that people should go on studying antiquity. Um, he's himself interested in it. And then he's got a bust of Pericles, you know, the fifth century Athenian politician in his study, you know. So, but, you know, so, so, rather alarmingly, Pericles died in a plague in Athens. <laughs> kind of strange symbol to have now. But um, I mean, I think the problem for me is that I, I, you know, wanting to interest loads of people in the ancient world is not that Boris is is insincere in his um, in, in his enthusiasm for the ancient world. It's just. It, it kind of tends to give the impression that that somehow studying classics is a very conservative thing to do. You know, it's Johnson and Rees Mogg um, and Co. And they uh, and it sort of makes it reinforces the idea that most of us in the profession are trying to get rid of. You know, that classics is an elitist discipline. You know, it's, it's not it's very for, cool. It's, it's, it's for old Etonians, yeah. not for the likes of us. You know, and I think uh, that's the problem I have with it. I, I disagree with all sorts of interpretations he has um, about the ancient world. I mean, he hugely admires fifth-century classical Athens, and there are things to admire about it. Um, but it was also a pretty brutal place. Um, uh, you know, and God help you if you were a woman, right? but. Uh, but it's more, I think, that it, it sort of tends to tar the study of the ancient world with that sort of um, uh, upper crust Tory brush. And I'm fine that upper crust Tories <laughs> study the ancient <laughs> world. I just don't want to be just them. Yeah, it just maybe they'd stop talking about it so much to try and uh, change <laughs> yes. the perception of it. You know, and it's the kind of the throwing out of little Latin quotes. You know, it makes me, you know, it makes me want to be sick, really. You know, as if, <laughs> as if somehow that kind of legitimated what I've said, because I'm just about to throw out a quote that none of you understand. So, and you know, for me, studying the ancient world is about opening up subjects. It's about democratising us all, um, not about using it as a kind of gatekeeper to the posh. I think that's a, that's a really good point because when I must admit when they quote Latin, I don't have a clue what they're talking about. Um, just for for those um, who who don't know, Amy, uh, Pericles. You mentioned how Pericles died. Boris Johnson's got this bust of him in the in his <laughs> office. What should we yes. know about Pericles to sort of give us an insight into, you know, if someone's got a bust of Winston Churchill in their office, we know what that's all about. What's mm. what's a bust of Pericles in his office telling us? Well, Pericles is a very tricky. A character. If I was Johnson, what I would say, why do I want to bust a Pericles in my study? Um, he um, was the person, so far as we can tell, who was one of the most powerful voices for the virtues of Athenian democracy. Um, he, uh, uh, he, he, he managed to draw together, at least in one version of a speech that he gave that we have. He managed to draw together the idea of, um, of the 
politics of democracy with the culture and the philosophy and the art of Athens in a kind of democratic patriotic vision. You know, it was, uh, you know, Pericles and his friends who commissioned the Parthenon, for example. You know, it's, it's about seeing, you know, the beauty of a democratic political system and and using um, uh, 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 using people's skills and talents and artistic uh, uh, expertise to glorify the homeland, you know, and uh, and it's certainly the case that uh, Pericles, who was a very powerful voice in the middle of the fifth century. BC. Um, he, he, had, he has long been associated with, and was right back to then, um, with that kind of sense of the beauty of democracy. Now, uh, fine, that's one side of the story. You know, he was also a pretty brutal imperialist. <laughs> and, you know, what we do like to forget uh, is that Ancient Athens, with its wonderful, in some ways, democratic culture, was busy suppressing its neighbours and imposing its own political system on them. In the end, they go to war about it and the Athenians lose. And Pericles is a, is a kind of, I mean, you, just as people now disagree in all kinds of ways, and I think rightly about, you know, the overview of what Churchill stands for, you know, both good and bad. Um, Pericles is uh, a symbol of Athenian democracy and culture, but with some uh, unpleasant underbelly. And you mentioned that uh, the Pericles died in a plague. Obviously, you know the ancient uh, world has been hit by various uh, similar things to, to what we're going through in the past. Um, to what extent uh, in the past would the people, the citizens, blame their leaders for uh, that sort of thing in the way that we do right now? Or is it blamed somewhere else? Is it the gods or uh, or just nature? They, uh, they do, up, up to a point. <laughs> but they're more likely to blame, A, as you say, the gods. They, they don't understand, in the way that we understand, the nature of disease and contagion. You know, they, they know it comes from somewhere, but where does it come from? They don't have a Chris Whitty. They uh, no, I think no, well, they've got a few doctors, but none of them, I'm afraid, at the right hand of the politicians, right? Um, and uh, recommending some pretty odd things too. Um, so you know, one of the things is to say that that plague is uh, brought by the gods. If there's a plague, we have done something wrong, and we've done something wrong often. Um, uh, either against the gods or they, we have committed a sin the gods want to punish us for. And that's what the plague is. And that's what you see in Greek literature. You know, one of the most famous um, plays, you know, in, in the Western world, Sophocles' Oedipus the King, um, uh, the origin of Freud's Oedipus complex and goodness knows what else in the modern world. It starts with a plague and the plague shows you that something in the state has gone terribly wrong because the gods are punishing us. And I think that that's, the, that, that's probably the, the, the most standard thing. I think they're also, you know, um, this is not a million miles away from Mr. Trump, I'm afraid. Um, they also will blame outsiders. You know, it all came from those nasty Easterners. They brought it. Um, you know, and Trump 
talking about uh, you know the China plague, the China virus, is it isn't all that far from what some people in the ancient world used to say about where these pandemics came from. I could speak to you about this for so long because it's so uh, fascinating. One of the things that really struck me when I was thinking about um, uh, chatting to you is how 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 many uh, words and phrases uh, have found their way into the sort of political discourse, whether it's like fiddling while Rome burns, crossing yes. the Rubicon, <laughs> bread and circuses. And yeah. if we twisted them all out of their original context so that they're not quite what we think they mean these days. We're quite good at doing that. Um, sometimes we use them absolutely rightly. I think fiddling while Rome burns is a very is a, is a very interesting one because what it refers to is the Emperor Nero um, who when there was a vast fire in the city of Rome, he uh, in, instead of instantly going and helping, he sat on the outskirts in one of his villas watching the flames and playing his lyre. The lyre is the ancient equivalent of the violin or the fiddle. I, I think what's very, very interesting is that when we use the, the, the phrase fiddling while Rome burns, I mean, a lot of people, I think, don't realise that it means playing a musical instrument. They think it means kind of fiddling with a piece of paper, you know, being a bit ineffectual while Rome burns. Um, but it's still a very, very common image. I mean, you can go to, you know, any daily newspaper and look at the last 10 years of cartoons. And, you know, I can pretty well guarantee that there'll be at least two or three which have shown Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Gordon Brown, whoever, <laughs> you know, uh, sitting there with a wreath on their head, town going up behind them uh, in flames. And, you know, they're sitting there with a guitar or something. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just before I let you go, just bringing politics right bang up to date, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, uh, was talking in the last few days about the purpose of education. <gasps> And saying it was the purpose of education was basically just to get a job, and you took issue with him. I did, you know, I, and as I said in the little tweet, um, you know, I, as somebody who's in education, you know, I don't think that employment is irrelevant here. I mean, you know, if if I was teaching a load of students, all of whom remained unemployed when they left my university, you know, I think we weren't doing something right. But it's such a narrow mechanistic view of what education is it's about it's about thinking differently it's about helping helping us to help each other to make the world we live in better it's not about whether i can get an extra 10k on my salary <laughs> and sometimes it's just nice to learn things for the sake of it which i hopefully yeah. is what we've done in the last um last I half hope, an hour well, I so. Hope so. Thank you it's been much, so Matt. lovely to speak to you uh, professor mary beard there joining us on times Thank radio you. talking us through in our history class how uh, what what the past might be able to tell us about what's going on in politics right now and basically just confirming um, our suspicion that there's there's nothing new that's ever happened and uh, the same things that we complain about our politicians people have been complaining about for for centuries and centuries well thanks to mary beard then that's all we've got time for on this episode to listen to the whole times radio show just go to the times radio app and click listen again to make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast, subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Radio to subscribe. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.